Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Brother Axel Savari, and today we'll be talking about Freemasonry and the Tower of Babel. Now, this is a story, in my opinion, that a lot of people aren't going to immediately connect with Freemasonry. But I think when we delve into this, we're going to find that what the message of this biblical story is, is right at the heart of what Freemasonry is trying to do with humanity. How typical of Freemasonry that at its heart is a story barely mentioned. A little bit in old rituals, a little in the Scottish Rite, in the Old Testament, in the Talmud, etc., etc. But it's they're just little references. You know, we had to dig deep to get to the core of Freemasonry. To me, what's really interesting about this story is that it paints a picture of our ancestors as more than just you know farmers or hunter gatherers who were busy making up stories about superstitious deities that they believed in when we look at the the story of the tower of babel we're looking at a humanity united on a great project you know and i think this is what this the spirit of this is what freemasonry is trying to carry forward into the future one work one mind one people one language one language and that's sort of what happens is that in the ambition of mankind to reach high to the heavens, they were smote down by the Lord. Well, in that ambition, we scared God. When, you know, we don't really think of God as, at least in the biblical sense, as a being that can be scared, right? But when all these humans gathered together on the plain of Shinar and started building their tower, God, in the plural, by the way, starts to get scared of what they're accomplishing and has to use uh, his power to basically scatter mankind over the face of the earth so that they don't reach into his kingdom. But what does this mean? What does it really mean to reach the heavens? Is it to go to an actual place? Are we acquiring some sort of knowledge? Or is this a discovery of the divinity within? I think it's the discovery of the divinity within, but also combining that with the divinity of others. And I think that's what made the humans in this story truly dangerous to God, is because we started to reunite, right, back into the hole that we were once, that we were separated from. That's what I think really scares God in this story, is that humanity unites on a project and starts building something. You know, they start putting their minds collectively towards the same effort. And when we do that as human beings, we become an unstoppable force of nature. But every unstoppable force will always be opposed by a counterforce. The immovable object. This force, this counterforce, is at the heart of all physics. You throw something out, there's friction. You know, a group rises up to take power, there's another group trying to counter that power. Like there's always this, this goal of equilibrium in nature. And so here we are trying to raise up this Tower of Babel towards the heaven, and now a force is applied from above 
trying to reduce us back down to where we started. It's almost as if God is presenting us with a challenge in order to improve us. Well, is it God is the question. So this is the really interesting part of this story for me because it ties in with some Gnostic beliefs that perhaps the God that we think of in the Old Testament isn't exactly our friend. It's quite possible that the God we're talking about in the Old Testament is a demiurge or a lesser or, or false God impersonating the one true God. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, in certain phrases, uh, you'll see that God has um, a little more of a personality. You know, he gets, He's vengeful, he's angry, he's happy. Uh, he has all these emotions that you would only attribute to a human being. Well, and the Hebrew word for God that's used in this portion of Genesis is Elohim which is plural. It's not just one God. There are many gods. And so the, the people of Israel are communing with one God, but he's not the only one who's present on the earth at this time. He's, he's one who demands sacrifices and tributes and worship and prayer. There are other Elohim that are around that other people are communicating with. I think it's important for, for us to realize that the early Jews may not have been monotheistic. That's something that emerged over time, the belief in one God. Uh, there are some phrases in Deuteronomy and other parts of, of the early uh, Old Testament, which, which shows that, you know, there were other gods, so to say, and that these gods may have been lesser to the Jewish God, but they were still almost viewed as, as other gods with powers, which, which leads into the idea that there are many gods, but that doesn't, doesn't mean that, that this one particular God that may have been... Um, at the Tower of Babel pushing us back down was in fact the one true God. Well, that's the idea of Abraham's covenant, right? He is communicating with one of these gods and he makes a sacrifice to this God and says, I will make a covenant with you. I will worship you. My people will worship you. My, my lineage will worship you. In return, you will grant my people the kingdom of Israel and we will establish this great nation, right? So he picks an Elohim and says, I'm going with you. I'm thrown in with you. And, you know, the rest of these gods are not false gods to me. But he, Jehovah or Yahweh, he wasn't the original God or the only God. Well, and we have to, to understand the mindset of the ancient world where even though you didn't worship a God, you also were wary of other gods because they still had some power and you could still irritate them. You could do something that would uh, bring pain or shame to your family or to yourself. So, you know, in today's sense, it's, oh, this is a real God and that's a fake God. Well, back then, they were all sort of real. You just believed your God was mightier than all the other gods. So it's a completely different mindset in terms of religion than we have today. Yeah, at this time, monotheism was considered an innovation religiously. Like, that was not the the main form of religious philosophy before before the Jews, essentially. Well, if you look at Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, all of these cultures uh, indulged in a sort of polytheistic religion. And, and the Romans, interestingly enough, when they conquered a certain region of the world, they would allow that culture to continue worshiping their own gods. Actually, their gods were introduced into the pantheon. We've fallen so far from this, this ancient ideal, which I think was actually a pretty good concept in which Instead of uh, being accusatory towards each other's religions in a way of saying they're not real and they're fantasies, but my fantasy is probably a reality, um, I don't know. It just seems like nonsense today. The, the ancient concept allowed for a more 
a unifying world and, and something where you could, you know, this open-mindedness would allow for more diverse thought and, and exchange. Well, and it also put humanity on a more even playing field with these Elohim, right? Because in the story of the Tower of Babel, it's let us confound their language. Let us prevent them from coming into our kingdom. So it's, it's almost as if the gods of this story are acknowledging that humanity could one day join them in in stature as gods. There's a not only a potential, but a probability of success. And of course, Freemasonry has the same promise, that one day humanity can rise to a greater stature than it currently stands at. I think in many ways, Masonry is a path of evolution uh, for its initiates. In the same way that a uh, practitioner of any religion is moving towards a destination, towards an evolution. You know, there's this point of adaptation with our environment, with the challenges, and at the end, we're supposed to be better people. And I think the story of Babel gives us a path in which to follow Masons. The one thing we haven't mentioned here, and which really solidifies the Masonic connection, is Nimrod. Nimrod was said in a different part of the Bible to be the king of Babel. And it has thus been assumed throughout the ages that he was the one that directed the construction of the Tower of Babel. And he was, in a sense, the first grand master of Masons. He employed all the Masons in a free and united way towards the construction of this temple. Yeah, so Nimrod, he's not directly mentioned in the biblical version of the story of Babel, but he is mentioned in the Madrash, which is like the, um, it's like the rabbinical commentary on the Talmud, which is the Jewish word for you know, what we know as the Old Testament. But there's a lot of commentary and legends surrounding the story of Babel, because again, the story of Babel itself is fairly short. So Nimrod is not only the king of this area, but he's also he's like a proto King Solomon kind of character. He's a director of masons. He's a he's a supervisor of the work, and it was his idea after building all these cities to start building this tower to God. In some ways, he is King Solomon, Hiram King of Tyre, and Hiram of Biff wrapped into one character. He's not only the king, but he's also the architect. He's the one that levies the workmen and he acquires the resources in his own kingdom, and so he's a personification of wisdom, strength, and beauty. Well, I think it's really interesting that in the Old Testament, all of the great men, all the great characters, uh, the the role models that you're supposed to look up to after reading these stories, they're all builders. All of these great and influential characters of biblical history, they're builders of city, right? Whether it's Nimrod or Solomon, Solomon or Cain, for example, you know, he goes into the land of Cain, builds up these cities like well, even Noah. I mean, he's established reestablishing civilization after the flood. But that's kind of where I'm going with this is that these great characters are those that possess the knowledge of civilization, because there does seem to be a divide between, you know, the people that are farming and hunting and just kind of living a subsistence lifestyle and these early men who can go out and build things for themselves. It's, it's almost like they're on a level with God to begin with because they know how to organize society. They know how to summon up civilization. Why do stonemasons build cathedrals with spirals, towers? They're reaching towards the heaven, you know, an obelisk, a pyramid. All these ancient structures are reaching towards the heaven. But for some reason, we use Nimrod as an insult. When you call someone a Nimrod, you're basically calling them an idiot. 
Why? Because, you know, there's this idea in Christianity and Judaism that, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, a notion to try to build a tower towards heaven. Well, I reject that notion. And I completely reject it on the basis that why can't we storm the halls of heaven? Because the demiurge has convinced us that we can't, Brother Matthias. And, that, that, and that's the, the ancient curse, almost, of, of these old religions, is that we have become cowed as human beings. We don't think that it's possible. When we utter the words, building a tower to heaven, I mean, you're right. It sounds like a joke, right? Who thinks like that anymore? But I think it's really interesting that there, were, there was a people in the ancient past, I mean, whether or not you take the Bible as history, to me, it doesn't really matter. I think the legend speaks for itself, that there was this idea amongst at least some humans that we could aspire to such greatness. That is the definition of greatness, reaching towards the heaven. I think in masonry, we are co-creators with the great architect of the universe. You notice in the rituals, we never really, we're not worshiping God. We're following God's divine plan, his tracing board, his trestle board. It's something he's laid out, and if we follow it, like a formula, we can gain something. We can go up Jacob's ladder. We can enter the star of initiation. We can realize our divinity. We can become like our creator, and in that, we will become a being able to create other things. We're already in the process of being creators. And I think the Tower of Babel was a great creation of mankind. So this is not something that's stupid as an endeavor. I think this is something that's worthy. Maybe the only worthy goal of a united humanity. But I think it is something that, at least within masonry, has been diluted into self-improvement, right? Because what you're talking about is the continuation of a millennia-long project by humanity that is for humanity, not for the individuals who are climbing Jacob's ladder. Why are people climbing Jacob's ladder? To read, to bring humanity up towards heaven. It's about the entire species elevating itself. It's not about making good men better. It's about making the species a god. That's an entirely different aim. It's about making humans better, not men better, humans. And when I say humans, I mean humanity. I mean all of us together. You know, Freemasonry is too diluted with self-improvement, I think, these days. And so we think of it as something that we do individually. No, no, no. I, I think that's nonsense. I think this is something it's, that we do together. It's group work. And in this group work, we're trying to build this tower. When in the rituals, it says the temple of humanity that we're building. And each of us is a living stone in it. What are we talking about? We're building the Tower of Babel. Like the, the, the suggestions are right there in all the degrees that we are building what Nimrod failed to build. And I believe, I don't know, my biblical history is not perfect, but I believe this is the first building of humanity that's mentioned in the Bible. This is the first building project. So it would make sense to me that Freemasonry is trying to reignite and re-inspire us towards completing the first project that we started. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, why is it that we would have chosen as, as the craft this, this idea of building, of using working tools, of building buildings and cornerstones and laying lines? The whole idea is we're building something. I mean, they could have used a different symbology um, at the beginning of masonry and called it something completely different. But no, they chose the word masonry. They chose the symbols of a stonemason because what they do is they build buildings and primarily they build religious buildings as we look in the um, the middle ages etc and in the ancient world really any great building was a building 
of religion. Well, and there's also this idea of uh, building a defense against catastrophe because we're not woodcarvers, right? We're not building out of mud and straw. We're building stone. We're carving stone because the people that built the Tower of Babel were the survivors of the flood. And they understood, I mean, obviously I'm not taking this literally, but if we follow the metaphor, like these people had just experienced a calamity brought on by the God that they thought was, you know, their creator, their divine father, right? He wipes out most of the world. And so what would last? Stone. Stone is the only thing that we can put up as a defense to our species being wiped off the map by some crazy God who gets a, a, a bug in his hair and wants to wipe us out again. So, putting this in perspective for myself, Masonry has a plan to build a temple of humanity. A temple made of living stones to be raised up, to reach the heavens, to gain the divinity deep within ourselves. What does this mean? This means we have a glorious destiny. And that a lot of these stories that Christianity has put a, you know, a negative spin on is in fact a suppressed story. That's what it is. It's a suppressor. It's propaganda against the truth. And we have to look in the crumbs of knowledge, the crumbs of history, to find the true destiny of humanity. Because, of course, right? Like, the things that are most important to our survival, because I think it's more than just, you know, finding our divinity inside. That sounds great. But reaching the heavens, transcending what is essentially an earthly prison and becoming like God. Because what is God? God is the ultimate freedom. It's authority, it's creativity, it's the ability to work, right? If we are stuck on earth, confounded in our speech and unable to talk to our brothers on our, by our side, you know, we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything and we're at the whim of a, of a superior creature. So to me, it's yes, it's finding the divinity, but that divinity means the survival and the, the propagation of the species. There's one reason I became a Freemason. And that's because in the craft... I'm not bending a knee before some vengeful God in order to please him. I'm not going to sacrifice in order to keep my body and my family alive, you know, during hard times. No, I became a Freemason because the great architect of the universe is a symbol of progress, of evolution, of an ultimate glory that we can achieve. I think it is our destiny to become God. It's our destiny to become the creator. Like a father who loves their children and wishes their children to be stronger than themselves, so does God wish us to, you know, uh, climb the mountain. The true God. The We're true not talking God. about the, the demiurge. Not the demiurge, but he wants us to climb this mountain. He wants us to get to the top. That's our destiny. And why is that so ridiculous that we could become like our father? Why is it that it's sacrilege to say that that we could have the powers of the of, of godhood one day? I think if we, you believe in evolution, then we're moving in a direction towards becoming better than we are now. I think the reason that we find it absurd is because we find it terrifying. As we should, because if we're thinking about who our father is, right, the one true God, what kind of obstacles do you think he's going to put in our path? Probably the most powerful ones imaginable, the ones that will take real work, real sacrifice, a real fight to get past. It's not going to be easy to become a God, otherwise everybody would do it. But was it easy to become a human being? Was it, was it easy for us to, to come out of the primordial soup? No, I mean, life has been advancing for billions of years. And this is a slow 
and steady struggle upward. But we are advancing. I, I, I reject the idea that you know we're all just as bad as we were a thousand years ago or as ten thousand years ago, a hundred thousand years ago. No, we're evolving. We are gaining knowledge. We are certainly imperfect. We certainly have many problems, deficiencies. We can be absolutely stupid and, and horrid and mistreat people. But within us lays that potential, which is to become like God. And that's brought out by surmounting chaos, by facing these terrible adversaries and, and taking our rightful place in the pantheon as human beings that have evolved beyond the earthly prison. This is, in one regard, one thing that I agree with Mormonism, because they had this idea of, of evolution, of eternal progression, as they would call it, towards, towards godhood, and that even as a god, there's a place to progress beyond that, that, that we're unaware of right now. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Mormon per se, but that it's an aspect that I think that they're aiming true uh, compared to the older religions that still have us being some sort of, you know, slaves to a despot. And of course, in Freemasonry, we're not in the business of educating people to be slaves. Right? No. We're, we're preparing people for a path of freedom, which is, if you follow it to its logical extension, a path to godhood. If you're going to embrace ultimate freedom, well, then you better be prepared to go all the way to the top. So if we put this story in, in a different sort of spin, um, it also shows us the pitfalls of humanity. Like, we can be defeated. And what defeats us is the confounding of language. we got to go back to this point because mm. he, he didn't destroy the tower. He... He didn't uh, blow it up, you know, with dynamite, throw lightning bolts down at it. Uh, this demiurge um, confounded us with language. He confused us because we were of one tongue before that point. And I think this points towards the idea that our greatest enemy is ourselves. Ourselves and our lack of understanding of others, which is essentially an extension of ourselves. You and I are part of the same thing, which is humanity. So humanity doesn't understand itself anymore. So it's powerless because if you don't understand yourself, you don't understand what you're capable of, what you, where you're going, where you're from. Without any of that information, you're stumbling around in darkness. Like, like Brother Pike says, all your blows are wasted in the void if you don't have vision. So really, he didn't necessarily even take away our language. He took away our sight. And as human beings, evolutionarily, we have favored vision as our main tool of navigating the universe. So without that symbolically, what, what can we perceive? What can we conceive of that is great, that is going to push this evolution forward? But it can be gained back. Unity is always right around the corner. It's a choice. It's a fundamental choice for us to cooperate in all things, economically, politically, religiously, philosophically, moralistically. When we work together, we can accomplish great things. We landed on the moon. This was a vision set forth and conquered by a people that gave inspiration to the entire world. And this is what the symbolism of the building craft inculcates in people. It's unity. You're taking scattered resources, scattered builders, separate units, and pushing them onto a path of unity. Once again, you're bringing things that were created from the earth, the ultimate whole, right? Bricks, wood, mortar, so on and so forth. These are you know, pieces of the earth that have to be recombined into, into a whole, something that it contains everything from the previous whole, but it's a new thing. It's a new building. It's a new creation. And that new thing has everything from the old, but it also has all of the knowledge of its journey 
into separation and back to unity again. So it's more powerful. It's more stable. It's more glorious. Well, and if we look at Freemasonry as an institution, a modern institution, we see the same thing. And there's a reason you and I are co-Masons. Our organization allows women. It allows uh, people of different races, religions, and creeds to come together to work together. And we look at our counterparts, the Malecraft Masons. Well, they don't let women in. And in some jurisdictions, they don't allow um, Africans in or people of too weird a religious background. There are more enlightened uh, jurisdictions, certainly in this country and worldwide. But still, look at us as Masons. We're all fractured. We're separated. We're of different tongues. Imagine what Masonry could do worldwide if the millions of members of the craft came together and united. What if there were women side by side with men? What if there were people of all different types of creeds and religions united towards this great work of building the temple of humanity to reaching up towards the heaven? What could we accomplish? Anything. Literally anything that we set our minds to. But what has masonry done instead? It's fractured. It's, it's separated. But we must unite again. And and I think there are, are small organizations that are coming up here in the 21st century attempting to put together a broken masonry to restore it to its former glory. Because it certainly has lost an incredible amount of, of prestige and purpose. You know, they, they don't have the vision of the tower anymore. That's been lost and has been lost for at least a century. I mean, masonry, as most people understand it now, is a social club. I mean, we were talking with somebody on the phone just earlier today who's been a mason for 15 years and is resentful of the, the, the social club that he's joined, essentially. He reads these legends. He reads these stories about our first grandmaster, Nimrod, builder of the tower towards heaven. And, you know, where do we find that these days? And not just with masonry, where do we find that anywhere in human society? What great projects are we working on? You mentioned the moon landing. What great things has our civilization done in the past half of a century? It's the problem everywhere. I mean, the, the contentious nature of politics worldwide, the division between people on almost every idea. We don't have anything to work on. We don't have a goal. We don't have a Tower of Babel. We are divided, and we are killing each other. We are attacking each other. We are insulting one another. This is the world today that we live in. We must bring unity as Freemasons. You know, Brother Matias, it's really interesting, now that I'm, I'm thinking about this, to destroy the Tower of Babel, to destroy humanity's unity, this Demiurge character confounded our language. And if we look out at our society today, what is the most contentious issue that everybody is losing their minds over? It's language. Whether it's pronouns or political conversations, where we are most divisive, where we are most inefficient is in our language. People can't speak to one another anymore. You know, we don't understand one another and we bicker about language. You know, it's, it, the, the same curse of this demiurge is still on us. You know, we think of ourselves as so evolved. We're beyond religion, the limitations of these old gods of our dreams. But we're still fighting this same battle that the demiurge set us to instead of building the Tower of Babel. You know why, Brother Axel, in my opinion? It's because we have given up our greatest weapon, the trivium of the seven liberal arts and sciences. The trivium of, of logic, rhetoric, grammar. This was our greatest weapon taught in the ancient world 
to fight this, this confounding of language. It taught us how to think, how to write, how to speak. It allowed us to have conversations, arguments, and debates which would bring elucidation, not darkness. Because when we're talking about the confounding of language, we're not necessarily talking about people having different languages, having a different set of noises, right? What we're talking about is the ability to communicate truth from one human being to another. And that's where the trivium comes in. It's really interesting that you brought that up because that is a true universal method of communicating truth between two people. It can it can transcend the grammatical limitations of different languages because it follows the same logical formula no matter how you express it. And that's what we need. We need consistency. We need a forum. We need the ability to actually communicate with one another. But today, with our technology, with our luxury, with our wealth, we can't even communicate with one another. Just go on to Facebook. It's a freaking nightmare. There's no communication. Everything's been reduced to one-liners and memes. And this is the news of today. This is the communication of today. It's not the beauty, the splendor of the trivium at work. This isn't the works of Plato and of Socrates, of St. Augustine, of Spinoza. No, this is gone now. We have nothing but the... Vicive nonsense. Luckily for humanity, Freemasonry is a part of a tradition that has preserved this knowledge. And, you know, while our brothers in mainstream Masonry might look at this as, you know, just a, a passing line in their catechism, something that's, you know, mildly interesting for the more scholarly minded person, in our order at least, this is the main focus of the first, at least the first two degrees of the Blue Lodges. In your education, you are reminded of how to communicate truth. You are reinvested with the proper working tools of a human being who is able to create this unity. And you do that by understanding what truth is, how to communicate it properly, and then deliver that in a beautiful method. If you look at every great movement over a thousand years, it's all based on the spoken word. It's the ability of one great person or a group of great people to communicate profound ideas and to change the consciousness of society. Whether we look at a Martin Luther King, a George Washington, a Gandhi, they all have this amazing ability to, to use this trivium to convey an idea and to move and mobilize society towards a great end. Why aren't we doing that today? Well, we are. We are right now. Because if you look at the history, at least of the last mm, six or seven hundred years, what, what's the great revolutions of our times? We start with the Gutenberg Press, distributing the word to the people. Then we have radio, bringing on like the distribution of the spoken word to the people. Print is everywhere. We have the internet, which is only a method of exchanging information. And now look what we're doing. We're podcasting. This is the first time in human history that the spoken word has as much reach as the written word, right? It's all about increasing language and spreading language to one another and building bonds of solidarity through language, through ideas, through the sharing of conversation. This is the cement that holds together the Tower of Babel. But we have to be careful because this cement, which I agree, has a double-edged sword, which there's so much material out there today that a lot of it isn't necessarily true. It's not 
supported by actual facts. It's people's opinions given as facts. And we have to be careful because we sort of have to shift through a lot of nonsense to get to the truth. And a lot of people are a little too lazy, in my opinion, to take the time to get to the bottom of something. Well, what do working tools denote? If we take the trivium as being a symbolic working tool um, in the first three, three degrees of masonry, well, working tools denote work. There's a big old pile of work ahead of us that has to be done. That's why we're given tools in the Blue Lodge. It's not to just look at them. It's not to just speculate about them. We have to put them to use at some point. Doesn't mean we all have to pick up a hammer, a chisel, and a 24-inch cage and start making a sculpture out of stone, but we do have to do something with these tools that we're given. Well, I think the tools points us in the singular direction of cooperation. If we can apply these tools, if we can maintain uh, a due meeting in all things, if we can guard ourselves from our own passions, then we can listen to other people. We don't have to agree, but we need to learn to listen as an apprentice is made to listen. We need to build off people's ideas and not destroy them. So when an idea is given in Lodge, whether you agree or not is irrelevant. The idea is to, in your mind, in your imagination, to foster this concept, to believe in what you don't believe in, at least for a moment, and to give constructive ideas and criticism so that this this concept can grow. That's why in our lodges we call uh, what would be called an essay or a paper, we call them an architecture because they lay the foundation of a plan, a plan for a discussion so that we can actually construct something together. It's not about tearing people down. It's about building up a concept. And at the end of the day, you can let go of the idea. But we live in a society that we can't for a moment entertain someone else's idea. And this is what Freemasonry was born to do, is that we are in a lodge with people from such diverse backgrounds. The more diverse, the better, so that we can really enter their consciousness and they can enter our consciousness, and that those two consciousnesses can become one conscience. So in that glory, we find the Tower of Babel being built. And if you do have to break something down, or t- like within every piece of material you're handed is something of the earth. It's, there's something divine and human about every resource that you come across. So if, if we're breaking things down, it should only be to reveal this inner essence. Everything should be with a mind to add it to the construction project that we're working on. Everything in our lives should be viewed as a resource, a piece of cement, a brick, a rope, a pulley, a tool, whatever it has to be to contribute to this project. If we don't focus on this with a single mind, both individually and collectively, it's not going to get built because essentially it is a monument to cooperation. I like what you're saying, and it's made me think that maybe the Masonic Lodge is a pantheon. It's a pantheon, not of gods, but a pantheon of ideas is a place that we all as as craftsmen go out on our journeys and return and and add to this great pantheon of masonry which is a conglomeration of all concepts of all philosophies and in that cooperation we can begin the construction of the tower well what is a mason's lodge but a place to store tools it's a repository of materials and tools and things to take out again into the world to continue the work a lot of people in masonry a lot of our brothers, um, they'll, they'll think that the work that we do is in Lodge. The work that we do is not in Lodge. 
A lodge is a place of instruction. It's a storehouse. It's a place to retrieve the tools and the materials that we need to go and work on the project. The project is out in the world. It's humanity. All of humanity are not Freemasons. If we're building the temple of humanity, we're going to have to step out of the lodge at some point. We do need to step out of the lodge. And I don't mean not that we're not attending. Like going to lodge is important. But our work isn't in the lodge. Our work isn't with our brethren. Our work is in the world. Our work is to build bonds of solidarity. Our work is to build the dream of humanity, to help it evolve, to be the guide and the helper of the ignorant. And this is not done inside the, in the safety of our lodge. We go to lodge, like you said, to exchange ideas, to receive inspiration, to rejuvenate. It's a place of healing. But then we go back out into the world to do the work, the great work. Well, on that note, Brother Matthias, I think it's about time that we leave this lodge and head back out into the world to do our work. Agreed. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comesa. Universal Comesa is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.